Welcome to episode 195 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, father. Hey. <laughs> so we are here in beautiful Enfield, New Hampshire. We're sitting out on the deck listening to some dude mow his lawn and record a podcast. And we have with us our earthly father, not our heavenly father, although he's with us too, uh, to record a podcast. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. That's correct. So we're all together. We're in person. And I think it's fair to say that my father is our pastor in residence, right? Of this podcast, like the official yeah. pastor of the Reformed Brotherhood podcast. Are yeah. you comfortable yeah. with that title? Yeah, well, that's a nice title. Thank you. <laughs> so Good I'm going to be, be posting his email for all your pen. I'm just kidding. I, I won't do that. Yeah. But uh, we're excited because, you know, we always try to make sure we say that we're not pastors. We're not your pastor. You should talk to your pastor. And we love to have pastoral voices on the show. Yes. So we're excited to have an actual pastor to join us for uh, this discussion. Yes. And we went, we went back and checked the last time yeah. that you were on the podcast with us. It was like 18, right? Yeah. So it was like two years ago. Had yeah. Been. It's been a long time. So it's, I'm glad time. to have you yeah. back, Dad. And yeah. anybody can go back and listen to that one as well because that was also a really, yeah. that was a great podcast actually. Yeah. So, so what are we doing today? So we're going we're gonna to springboard off a question we received uh, about, it's kind of a complicated question, but the idea is, you know, as Reformed Christians with a Reformed uh, hermeneutic, we look at the scriptures, particularly prophecy in the Psalms, but not exclusively, and we see that certain things have dual fulfillment. So for example, when uh, we have a Psalm that's talking about David and David's earthly reign or his kingship or a battle that he's in or something like that. We look at that and say, well, that's about David. Right. But then we also look at it and say, well, that's also about Jesus. So the, the, uh, this came from our good friend, Jimmy, who asked the question, Jimmy. I don't know when it was, is we've got a big backlog. Uh, and he wanted to know, like, how do we wrestle with that? How do we thinking about the historical grammatical method, how do we um, wrestle with the idea that the original human author maybe didn't actually have that in mind? And what do we do with that? And how, I, I think another question that he didn't ask, but that comes up is, how do we safeguard then against kind of flying off into these sort of fanciful interpretive methods that sure. like the Roman Catholic Church is really known for, or, or some of our less careful exegetes in the Protestant tradition too. Right. But first, we got affirmations and denials. Yes. And everybody's all in. So you mind if I kick us off then? Let's do it. So I'll start. We'll go around. We'll each do an affirmation. We'll go around each do denial. So I'll start with the affirmation. I'm affirming with horseradish. <laughs> <laughs> Only because. I haven't done this before. I don't think I mentioned I think this before so. in the podcast. But just for lunch, I had this delicious sandwich and just put, what was it? Was that horseradish spread? Mm -hmm. yeah. Is that what that was? Yeah. yeah, this is really good. I think any kind of horseradish is really delicious to me, but if you get it in spreadable form, you can put it on chips, you can put it on sandwiches, but I'm a dry sandwich kind of guy, so I usually just two pieces of bread and meat and cheese. And so I don't really do mayonnaise or mustard so much, but this for me is like the perfect, because it's like horseradish is not spicy in the same, like a traditional sense. I don't know, what is it, like sinus spicy? Well, I don't know what you call yeah, that. I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not sure. Yeah. So that's what I'm affirming with is, and I'm sure there's multiple brands. Do you know what brand that one was? No, I don't. But <laughs> well, they'll sponsor us if we can get the yeah. name on here. There we go. There you go. All right, Tony, what are you affirming? So I'm affirming with harmonics. 
And so Jesse, when he comes to visit, he relieves me of my normal duties to uh, play guitar during the worship service, which I greatly appreciate because it's nice to sort of be able to step back a little bit. And you did this amazing little thing during the <laughs> prelude. Was it, it was like a finger picking style of uh, 10,000 Reasons yes. right, by Matt Redman, right? Yes. And there's the spot where the guitar stops and usually people just like mute it and then they like they tap the guitar like that's the traditional way to do it. And Jesse just hits this perfect little <laughs> and the first thing that came into my mind is there's a there's a gif out there of Michael Scott and in the context of the show he's like hearing someone talk like say good things about him in the other room and he and he, yeah. he leans back he's got this big smile on his face he's like <gasps> and that was the that's the facial expression of the harmonic that Jesse hit I'm glad. Yes. I try to work that in whenever I can because it's not often that you can do the harmonic thing. It's yeah. kind of you know like a little it's a little kitschy, yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> You went kitschy, I went <laughs> All right, well, we know exactly where we stand with respect to harmonics on that one, so. All right, Dad, I'll kick it right, over so, to you. What are you affirming? All right, so I'm affirming the Puritan Reform Journal. I was actually reading it when I had to stop because they were begging me to be on the podcast. This is true. Uh, but the Puritan Reform Journal, I love it. I like how it's organized. It has a systematic theology section, a pastoral theology. Uh, it's very good. Uh, if you mention to Joel Beakey my name, you get a 10% <laughs> discount on a subscription. Oh, man. Uh, so that's what I'm affirming. We're going to get sued now. I love it. So how would somebody go about getting a subscription? What do you do to go find this? I would this? go to the Puritan Reformed website of the seminary there, and then there is a drop-down that has the journal. So what? give, give people an example. It's published uh, two times a year. Okay. I think it's like $30. It might even be cheaper for students. Okay. And so give people an example like what you were just reading. Because you have it in front of you actually right here. So I'm curious, what was the article you were just reading? I was just reading an article on Bavink and baptism. Now, as a Baptist, I wouldn't agree with Bavink. (laughs) But he was talking about the difference that even among Presbyterians, the understanding of does this refer to a baptized child is completely seen as saved or not, and sort of approached it. It was an interesting perspective. Interesting. Man, we could do a whole show just on that right now. Yeah, that was actually uh, one of the main differences, one of the reasons he wouldn't go to uh, teach at Kuiper School initially, was because Kuiper was very strong into presumptive regeneration, and Bovink was like, "Eh, I'm not so sure about that. Well, that's good. You balance those out. That's a strong affirmation right there. Yeah, that's good stuff. There's actual meat on that as opposed to me talking about horseradish. All right, so rounded denials. So we are in New Hampshire, which is beautiful, mm-hmm. but there's one thing that I forgot about because we haven't been here this time of year for a couple of years now. So I went for a run this morning and I thought that I was at least fast enough to at least avoid this particular problem, but it turns out I'm slow and much older now, but also they're just vociferous and like deer flies are what I'm oh, denying man. against. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if other people have those in other parts of the country. I'm not even sure what they're after when they're after me. But, like, they just don't stop. Like, they're... They're persistent. They're really persistent. And they're big. And they're just super annoying. So I'm just denying against deer flies. Somebody out there has to have had this experience as well. They'll carry off children. Yeah. (laughs) Wasn't Erasmus that writes when he was doing his Greek New Testament? He writes about how he was being attacked by, like, bugs. And he thought they were demons from the pit. 
I'm pretty sure it was harassment. I see how you can make that jump because if you get in a fog or cloud of deer flies, it's pretty awful. So what do you what do you do to fight the deer flies? Is there anything you can actually do? Well, that's why I walk with a hat to swat them away temporarily and just keep moving. (laughs) Don't stop. That's the worst thing is if you stop. I go with the John Knox style and I carry a broadsword around with me to fight off the deer flies. Yeah. Yeah. All right, good. All right, well then, <laughs> I'll kick it over to you for denial then. So this is like the universal denial of our time, but I'm denying COVID-19 and I'm denying it for a very specific reason. Obviously, like it's terrible and we should just deny it in general. But uh, I love that we're here in New Hampshire, but we should be in New Jersey, right? So we do this family vacation every year. Last year we did Beachcast, it was a lot of fun. That's true. And uh, we had to cancel our plans this year. So I'm thankful that we can still get together, that we can still enjoy each other's company, but it's not quite the same as sitting out on the beach. Rather than like a lawnmower that I have to try to edit out of the show right now, we should be trying to edit out like seagulls and like, I don't know, beach noise. I don't know, people with Jersey accents. I'm not sure. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) And we just went there. We did go there. Sorry (laughs) to anyone if you're from New Jersey. So now I'm really curious about what you're going to deny, Dad. Um, Because the affirmation was so strong, and I feel like you've taken this very serious as... As you probably, we probably take it more serious. Yeah, like we should, yeah. But we went with just bugs and, mm-hmm. well, COVID's a very serious denial. And it's but not going to the beach is not yeah. that serious. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So go ahead. What do you so got? So mine's probably not a popular one, but it's a two-form denial. <laughs> this is uh, good. Now I have a smartphone. Like a I love my phone. I do use it. Uh, but I'm denying people who are always on their phone because nobody's that important. And then <laughs> people who talk excessively loud when they are on their cell phone, Mm -hmm. like in a public place. So has this happened to you recently? I feel like there's a story here. Or is this just a cumulative? It happens occasionally, it's a cumulative. It's a pent up (laughs) sort of denial. Yeah, the worst is when you have someone who's talking about something that's like not pleasant, like it's not something you want to hear about. I, I schedule colonoscopies for a living. That's what I do for a job. And I frequently get people that at the end of the call, they're like, oh, I got to go. I'm in the line at the grocery store. <laughs> they're like telling me all about their gastroenterology symptoms. Now, I should I'm add, with you on that in, one. In this area, uh, we, have, we have a big lake. And once in a while, people will post who live along the lake. They'll post things to the community saying, please be aware that when you're out on the water, your voice carries. We don't need to hear about what you did last night. We don't need to hear about whose relationship you're with. That's funny. So obviously there are other denials. Yeah, yes. I just read one this week. Someone was again warning people. You need to realize if you're out on the water, you can hear everything you're saying. That's amazing. Has that ever happened to you where you've heard somebody talking? I don't think so. I mean, I'm pretty careful what I say. No, no, I mean, have you ever heard anybody talking? Oh, you can hear people, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. That's interesting. It's pretty easy. I mean, it does carry a long ways. Have you guys ever had this happen to you? And I know this is a common thing where you're in um, like a, well, we're all men. So it'd be a men's restroom. Oh, yeah. And you think somebody's talking to you that you don't know and you realize only too late that they have like an earbud in or they're yes. on the phone, some kind of wireless thing. I've had that where someone's walking toward you in a store and they'll say, hi. And I'll say hi. And I realize they're on there. You do the thing phone. where you like, you reach up to wave and then you realize they're not right. talking and you itch your head. Yeah. So, yeah. That's probably part of my denial. <laughs> That's a good one. We've never done that. No, I don't think that's new. Yeah, that's a very good one. So the moral of the story is if you're in the middle of the lake spending too much time on your cell phone, be careful. 
what you're talking about. Well, I mean, know? there's a spiritual connection here, right, with this, because like part of, of Jesus' teaching, of going out is. onto just pushing right. out onto the shore a little bit, getting that natural right. amplification of his voice, just goes to show that you're just going to be careful what you're saying, I guess. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you're on a boat. That's right. In any kind of body of water. Yeah. And yeah. how much quicker could Christ have gotten at Peter if Peter had a cell phone? That's true. It's <laughs> true. It's cut where it's kind of like Philip who didn't need a cell phone because he just like teleported from one place That's to right. another. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's true. You know what I was also thinking about recently was I was uh, going. I was out again for a run, and it was in a community park area. And there, of course, weren't many people around, but there was a gentleman who was he was pushing a stroller. So he had at least I think he had a little child, maybe maybe toddler age, in the stroller. And he walking along the water, and he had a dog as well with him on a leash, a big dog. And I passed him several times just because of the route. And each time I looked, I noticed that it's a beautiful day out. He's walking along the water, and all the time he's just on the phone yeah, pushing. And, yeah. and I, I just thought it was a wonderful reminder to like wherever yeah. you are, be fully there, like to appreciate what God has given us, and to go out and enjoy things. Yeah. And it's easy to get caught up in just having a device with you or something else, yeah. or even just listening to stuff in your ears, as opposed to listening to it in any other way. But you can just get caught up in losing yourself in the moment. There's something to be said for trying to put ourselves purposely where we're at and just mm -hmm. to enjoy without destruction. I'd so. just like to take this time to remind everybody that occasionally I will um, figure out that Jesse has been texting somebody during <laughs> recording the podcast. <laughs> So frequently uh, it's to ask his wife to good. bring him another beer. That's good. Which is great. Uh, but sometimes it's like just a random conversation with my wife about something she's painting. That's yeah. the most common one. That's true. To so yeah. be in the moment, Jesse. I just, yeah, I found myself instantly <laughs> convicted now for a good reason. Well, with that said, yeah, that was the best affirmation denials we've it ever was. done. So thanks, Dad. So today's topic is, uh, it touches a lot of different things, right? It touches hermeneutics it touches on preaching it touches on um just general like bible study like what right. do i what do i do with this text uh, it touches a little bit on like the difference between protestant i mean even reformed hermeneutics versus other branches of protestantism and then obviously roman catholicism which has a much more robust kind of allegorical interpretive mm -hmm. method so i thought it would be good for us to like read through a i'm going to read through one of the psalms that is probably the most classic example of this mm -hmm. and then i'm sure we'll talk about some passages in isaiah later but i'm looking at psalm 22 which is like the classic text that you read it and following the new testament there's no way you cannot see jesus right but before the new testament especially at the immediate time of writing it's it's unlikely that people would have probably thought a lot about this in terms of really strong messianic overtones right but it says um i'll read this the superscript too because it, it gives us a little bit of clue about what it was originally used for so it says to the choir master according to the doe of dawn a psalm of david my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted, and uh, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let him deliver them, or let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. 
and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but we get to we get to verse uh, 16 is where it really starts to seem like, oh yeah, this is definitely about the crucifixion. Right. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So this passage is, you know, not all of the Psalms are cited in the New Testament. But when we see the Psalms cited in the New Testament, predominantly they're interpreting them in light of them being about Jesus, right? That's all throughout Hebrews. It's all throughout Christ's own interpretive method with the Psalms is that they're about him. And then, right. of course, he says on the road to Emmaus that all the all the law and the prophets, and then he says later in the passage, the law, the prophets, and the writings testify to and are about him. Mm -hmm. So how do we handle this? Like, we affirm as Reformed Protestants the historical grammatical method but if we limit ourselves just to the historical grammatical method, we end up walking away, I think, with a, an interpretive method that sometimes kind of feels or maybe runs at odds with the way that Jesus and the apostles interpreted some of these passages. Sure. What do you think, Dad? Well, I think in the discussion, obviously, there's a big hermeneutical assumption, which I would say is true, that we're looking at that the New Testament does further explain and interpret the Old Testament for us. Right. Um, I guess with the question that the individual sent in, my only thought on that is that maybe the emphasis is in the wrong place. Like rather than in form criticism or higher criticism where we're trying to figure out the author's intent, we should be more focused on looking at the analogy of scripture to help us interpret what it means. Yeah. So like if you were to take this passion and say you were teaching or preaching on it, what would be like your approach then in trying to un like explain all of that to somebody yeah. who you're expressing it to or unpacking the scriptures? Well, I think, you know, in any Psalms, first looking at what kind of Psalm it is. Is it a lament? Is it personal? Is it corporate? Um, you know, finding out what, what category it fits in. Then looking at the superscription, kind of talking about that. Uh, presenting obviously historically crucifixion wasn't even a form right. of punishment or execution known to man then so we, we can't be saying well David clearly was saying this we can then though go through the parallels in the gospels where comments are met and mentioned what we know physiologically about crucifixion and say look clearly that would be an example of like prophetic telescoping or partial fulfillment where it's pointing to something way ahead. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, I think too, there's, there's an assumption that I, I'm not always a hundred percent sure where it comes from that they didn't know that they were talking about the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you look at rabbinical teaching on this passage, this passage, particularly it very quickly in the record and the rabbinical you know, record doesn't go that far back, but right. The earliest records we have of people commenting on this is are probably the New Testament. But once you get outside of that, they very clearly thought it was about the Messiah. They just didn't think the Messiah was Jesus. Right. Yeah. And they, you know, there are passages. We'll I'll, I'll pull them up in a little bit here. But there are passages in throughout the Old Testament that seem to indicate that God was revealing more to the prophets about some of the future fulfillment than maybe we initially think. You know, Amos. Right. What is it? Amos three. I'll pull it up here. But Amos. Um, one of the passages in Amos, in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, he says, For the Lord does nothing without revealing the secrets to his servants, the prophets. Right. That's a verse. So there's, there's, something, there's something there about the fact that the prophets, they're receiving special revelation that they're communicating to us in written form. Mm -hmm. But there's more that's being revealed to them 
that they didn't communicate to us in written right. form that helps them to understand what they're writing. Right. So someone like Moses, who has this un, almost unprecedented, you know, experience and uh, exposure to God, to think that he was writing things that seem clearly to be about the Trinity and that God didn't clue him into those, that he was totally right. ignorant. You know, he probably didn't have the full revelation of what was going on, but that he was totally ignorant to what the plurals in Genesis 1 mean seems a little bit like a, a presupposition that I don't know that is justified. And I think that some of what's embedded in Brother Jimmy's question, actually, like we should get into a little bit of that nuance there, because there is this idea, I think, sometimes where Christians can sense that they're on shaky ground if they're making these claims that of the prophetic right. telescoping right. where there's something right. that's happening in near fulfillment and far fulfillment but what if, if we're saying well did I, I think sometimes we're afraid to ask well how much did david know and does it matter right. that he knew or did not right. knew so like in the, in this case what would you say like does it matter well, think, to us that david yeah. knew or didn't know well, that? i think there's two extremes if you went to the extreme of i had to fully understand all the details before they could speak this and it would be truth that's a dangerous extreme because right. clearly that's yeah. not what scripture teaches. Right. Uh, if you went the opposite, they have no idea, like as you were saying, Tony, the clearly rabbinic teaching, the Talmud, all talks about the expectation of Messiah. And that clearly is there right. from even Deuteronomy 18 when Moses is saying, you know, another one prophet will come. When he comes, you got to listen to him. So, so they clearly had that mindset behind them. I think, though, the question of how much they understood if we focus just on that and that's going to be a roadblock to us taking the passage and applying it or saying it's truth that's a dangerous situation right i mean so of course we're going to affirm that the the, the scripture is inerrant and it's right. true but it sounds like what we're saying is that the efficaciousness of what's being written there is not hindered by how trying to sort out how right. much David, in this case, knew. But clearly, I, I'm getting from you guys, we're all coming to the sense that there was something there that God right. himself was imparting, perhaps, a certain right. base level of knowledge in terms of what he's writing. But of course, it doesn't matter that he didn't know the whole thing because it's still true and still got prophecy. Maybe, maybe you could look at it from this perspective and no analogy is perfect. You know, if you have a young child, you tell them you're getting in the car to go somewhere. Yeah. They understand enough to know what a car is. You get in it and it takes you somewhere, but they don't understand the mechanics. Now, maybe when they're older and they've studied it or they then they can understand, oh, this is how it works. Yeah. So that they understood the concept. Um, and it's interesting when you think about this, you, you look at like Second Peter 1 where it says no interpretation of prophecy was open just to man, right. which, which says to us that it is possible at times they, they did not, and I think in many cases, didn't have the full understanding of what this was, which is why they were walking by faith when they right. were teaching these things. And that's a really good point because I think, again, sometimes there's this sense that somehow it erodes the efficacy of scripture to say, well, the people who are writing this, it, I'll say in the extreme, had no idea what right. they were writing. That, you know, like they were just, right. just writing to the right. time. It's as if God somehow like pulled a quick one and used what was also relevant then to something that was going to be relevant later on. But I love this idea of like they're writing in faith that even represented in the actual articulation of the scripture by the Holy Spirit through the voice of a man, but certainly, of course, carried along by the Holy Spirit, that even in that, there's a great act of faith that's happening, yeah. and that there's a trusting. So there's something there that the person perhaps transcribing these words is understanding that God is doing a mighty work that is both here and also in the future, but they're satisfied with a faith 
that trust that what God is articulating is something that's going to be both like eternally contemporary, useful now and useful later. Yeah. So I, I wonder even with the questioner who raised the question, it'd be interesting to know what his understanding of inspiration is, because right. I would almost think if you were more the mechanical view of inspiration, where you're just kind of a mindless thing and this is poured in and you filter it back out, versus like the dynamic inspiration where it involves the author's personality, their experiences, uh, if that also would predetermine where you might start going in this direction. Yeah, Yeah, you know, there was this big controversy at Westminster Seminary. Oh, man, it was probably six, maybe seven years ago um, surrounding um, Peter Enns, right? Mm -hmm. And Peter Enns was a professor at Westminster Seminary, has all the reformed bona fides that you can have. And um, he started teaching that Basically, the New Testament authors took passages and changed their meaning, like classic liberal reader response that the original meaning didn't didn't matter. It was how the apostles kind of appropriated that text themselves. Right. And of course, there was a big controversy. There was professors that were let go and, and all sorts of issues. So that's one extreme where we can say like the original author had no concept. And you kind of talked about this earlier. But then there is sort of this other extreme where it's like Moses has a fully formed Trinitarian theology and David knew exactly who and when the Messiah was going right. to come. There's somewhere, you know, I'm not one of those people that always tries to find like the golden mean, like the middle of that spectrum is not always right. But there's somewhere between those two positions where people of faith reaching out in faith, they're able to understand that the immediate fulfillment is true. Right. When David's when David's talking about these evildoers that are, are encircling him, they that's true. And he's talking about his immediate circumstances. But I, I think that it would be silly to think that David didn't also understand that there was some future fulfillment of what was going on. Right. And, you know, I mentioned the superscript and I read that a lot of times people gloss over those. But in this superscript, this was written to the choir master. Right. This was intended to be a song that was sung by the Israelites. And when you look at the songs that are explicitly indicated, the psalms that are explicitly indicated to be sung by the congregation, they tend to be these forward-looking messianic ideas, right? right? So it's, it's a statement that the whole assembly of Israel is singing, you know, yearly on a cycle that ends up becoming this, almost like this longing and this cry for the Messiah. And that's what's so paradoxical about some of, of pre-Christian Jewish religion is you almost wonder how they missed it in some ways. And it's, it's interesting because if you look at um, the original Hebrew of this, it's kind of ambiguous between a couple different phrases. Mm-hmm. The Septuagint gets it the way that we see it. We take our, our reading from the Septuagint. But there are Jewish variants that appear and the evidence looks like they've changed this psalm. So instead of saying, um, they pierced my hands and feet, it says, like a lion, they encircled me. So there's evidence that they actually understood that this had to do with some sort of like, uh, you know, too like... close. Well, but like there's evidence that they modified it, and this was the Masoretic text, to actually point away from this messianic right, thing. Right, right. Because the idea of a, of a Messiah who was going to be like shamed and, and killed suffering. the way he was, suffering was so foreign to their mind at that point, there's evidence to actually change the text in order to accommodate that. So I, I think there's there's two assumptions in the question, maybe not in the question, but there's two assumptions that happen that one, the original audience didn't have any concept of this stuff, mm-hmm. which I think there's, we'll talk about some of the, the passages in a minute, but I think there's good biblical reasons to think that that's probably not the case. They had some sort of indication. But then there's also an assumption that nobody up until 
the Christian era interpret in these way that that I think is just bad historicity. Like the historical record seems to indicate people knew Psalm 22 is about the Messiah. People knew that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah. Right. When when Jesus brings up Psalm 110, right. he's not bringing up a question that the rabbis had never thought about when he says, how could David say to Messiah? How could the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord? He's not bringing up a question they had never wrestled with. He's bringing up a question to say, you guys, you, even you guys know that this is an interesting passage that needs to be wrestled with. So I think those two assumptions, you know, if we're trying to figure out how do we how do we handle this text, we need to first get behind those assumptions and realize that maybe they don't hold as much water. Right. Well, that's one thing I wanted to ask you then, Dad, is given all those things we talked about, how the, there's often error in extremes, how do we kind of become balanced when we approach scriptures like this that we can understand them properly and also not go either too far in one direction or make too much about something or make too little about it? Well, I think, I mean, a couple ways. One is obviously if the Holy Spirit's job is to illuminate and enlighten God's Word, and we're seeking to interpret it according to the Spirit, that should guide us against error and that we're testing everything against what Scripture says. Um, I still kind of look at this and think it is a bigger hermeneutical issue because the question is not really the author's intent. What is God's intent? Right. And, and we can discern that by balancing and as I said using scripture to interpret scripture to make sure we're making the right connections there yeah right uh, so I mean that that's where a broader knowledge of the Bible is important to interpret a text like Psalm 22 or Psalm 110 which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Right. I mean, to, to be able to say am I reading too much into this I don't want to go off into allegorizing uh, and I think we do see extremes, and I, I'm sure you've had excellent podcasts on this, you know, of, of <laughs> people who are, you know, afraid of reading Christ too much into every right. text. Right. You know, and that's that's an error, but also to neglect reading him into certain yeah. texts is also a dangerous error. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I, I know that there's a huge amount of love for Spurgeon in this family, but I love that quote because I think it demonstrates that tendency that like you can actually take a passage. Now we affirm the whole scripture is about Jesus, but that doesn't mean that every individual passage is specifically about Jesus or about, about Messiah. There's that quote from Spurgeon that's like, if you can't find Jesus in the text, then go through the hedge and find him or yep. something like yep. that. And he's saying like, you can find Jesus everywhere. And, and so there is that tendency to say like, you know, I, I've seen it. Um, I've seen it done where people take like the genealogies. The, actually, a really common example I find online is if you look at the meanings of the names in the first genealogy of Noah. Mm-hmm. Like some of the names, if you sort of like line them out to be a sentence, seem like a gospel presentation. And so people look at that and they're like, well, this passage is all about Jesus, this genealogy, because look at how the names work. And it ends up being almost like a secret code you have to discern right, to try to figure right. out. And in reality, like, yeah, maybe there's something there. Maybe that's a cool little nugget that God put in there for those who are studying. But like in actuality, it's it's probably really just a genealogy. There's not a there, we don't have to find some secondary fulfillment in every passage of scripture. Right. So I think we do have to be careful not to like overly insert Christ in places where he's not apparent. Like the scripture as a whole is not, the sum of the scriptures is more than the individual parts. Right. And I think sometimes this idea that we have to find Jesus in every passage is ignoring that fact that the sum of scripture is Jesus. The aim of scripture is Jesus. That doesn't mean every single individual passage is about Jesus, like specifically. And I think sometimes, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, I think sometimes my experience has been is that 
as the Holy Spirit does illuminate the scriptures, what we find is that he places Jesus in the proper context in places that are somewhat surprising to us. So for instance, like Paul is talking about, you know, the Israelites going through the wilderness and testing the rock and they're saying that right. that rock was right. Christ. Yeah. I, th- I think I remember reading that and thinking, oh my word, that rock was Christ. Like, yeah, that, right. That's not a, a plenary thing. And in the sense that like, it's not plain on the face. And like you said, we sometimes are so desperate for, we want to try to like throw in or imbue some sense of like different codes when really maybe the, the just the straightforward right. meaning is that God, his sovereignty is bringing about all these generations into the birth of Christ to deliver his son to yeah. us. And that we should just step back and marvel at that. And that's enough. Yeah. That should and be the, And there is a difference, like in that passage in 1 Corinthians, there's a difference between an allegory appearing and allegorizing. Yes, right. yes. And, and that I think people can get confused sometimes yeah. as to what that means. Yeah, and you know, I think too, like, like my motto is when something's confusing, just read a little bit more, right? And even when you read that passage, like Paul kind of portrays this rock in the wilderness, like the rock is following the Israelites around. So even just reading that right. and going, wait a second, the rock didn't follow the Israelites course, around right. should clue you into something. And this goes to what you're saying about like knowing the scriptures, right? We've talked about this sort of like theological spider sense. And there's a biblical spider sense too, where you should, if you, if you kind of pickle yourself in the scriptures, you should be able to see a passage and go, all right, well, Paul's saying that the rock was Christ. So did he really mean that like the physical rock was like <laughs> right. a pre-incarnate form of Jesus? Well, what can I find in the text that might help me understand that? Oh, well, he's imaging this Christ, this this rock, like like Christ is following the Israelites around. And I know that historically the rock didn't. So there's more going on. Right. But then on the other side, you know, there's passages that talk about the, the pillar of flame and the pillar of cloud as the Holy Spirit right. in the midst of the Israelites. Well, is there something that would tell me it's not actually the, the you know, a, a theophany of the Holy Spirit? Well, no, there's not. Like, everything in the text seems to be really straightforward. So I think really, like, immersing yourself in the Scripture daily and not just reading. You know, I love Bible reading. Because you and I were talking about this today. Like, Bible reading plans are great, and sometimes you need those to keep yourself on track. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, especially if you read the thematic ones, you end up spending a lot of time in the same ones. Like the Dr. Horner reading plan where you do like, uh, have you heard of the Dr. Horner plan? You've heard of the Dr. Horner plan? The Dr. Horner plan basically is there's 10 different categories of scripture and you read each of those repeatedly over and over again. You read 10 chapters a day. And what I've always been frustrated about that is that that kind of gives you this impression that certain certain sections are more important than other. Like you read Acts every month, but you only read Genesis every five months. So like, why is Genesis less important than Acts? I guess you can make an argument, but if you do that kind of reading plan, then what you find is you're so much more familiar about some things than you are about others. If you've only ever read Exodus one time for every, uh, every five times you've read Corinthians or Numbers, I suppose, you're gonna run into this problem where you don't spot that issue that the rock didn't really follow them right. around in the desert. Uh, right. Yeah. And that way we kind of get back to the grammatical historical. We take it literally until the literal meaning presents a contradiction right. or is illogical. Yeah. Right. And I mean, some of this is just a matter of, of words and context, right? I mean, right. God is delivering right. to us something that is infinite in a way that's very finite. And so we're going to wrestle through what these things mean and by faith try to apprehend them in a way that is consistent with the texture or the texture consistent with the scripture and then provides (laughs) (laughs) a texture and then provides uh, a way for us to also build application of that so 
I'm curious, like, what would you, what do you see as like kind of a, a big error that people then generally make? Like, if, if there's, is there one that stands out with this kind of thing, with the, either questions of prophecy, uh, understanding the allegorical versus the not? Well, I mean, I, I guess it's a combination. Uh, certainly, there's people who misapply certain texts that are promises to Israel uniquely under theocracy and apply that to individual situations where they'll quote yeah. it to someone else. Uh, uh, I think people misunderstood or misunderstand the priesthood of uh, the scriptures. In other words, this doesn't mean everyone is entitled to just their own opinion as to what they read. Right. And so my opinion is just as good as your opinion, and we don't need to really discuss it because we're each kind of receiving what God wants us to. Yeah. Uh, I think the other danger with this discussion, and we're not saying uh, this is what we're dealing with primarily, but if you begin to say, well, that wasn't the author's intent, that opens the door for you to say that really is not applicable, right. or for you to reinterpret it to a context that you want to apply it to today. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are, there is obviously contextualization in Scripture, but that's not contextualization when you, you know, purposely saying, because in a sense, we're not we're not the author. God is the author, and right. God chose to reveal it as He chose to reveal it. Right. And I think that the, most of the people who are listening are, are of course, going to be on that same page, and they come to the Scriptures with a great sense of fidelity. They want to practice what is a proper understanding of what they read. So, and maybe we've kind of covered this a little bit, but how do we do that then? I mean, for the casual person who's just saying, yeah. I want to open my Bible and I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm captivated by the Word of God and I want to be co so careful to understand it rightly. And I think there are people, and I've come in, I've been this way myself at some points in time, where you can become almost just so obsessed that you're, to not get it wrong, mm -hmm. uh, that you're just so focused on, I just want to understand it properly. Yeah. I know there's so yeah. many different opinions about what these things mean. How do I know which is right? And I want to understand all these passages properly. Yeah. I don't want to get caught up in distractions or red herrings. So what are like simple ways? I mean, when you're talking to your congregation, when you're teaching people, what are kind of simple ways that we can start to do that process to feel confident yeah. that you would always talk about reading like the full counsel of God, reading the scriptures? Um, are there other things? Subscribe to the Puritan <laughs> Journal. <laughs> Tell Joel Beakey. No. Does, uh, do you have some sort of beat on a commission that no. we don't know about, or what's no, going I have on to here? Speak to Joel. Yeah. Uh, Are you uh, and Joel like best one, friends now? I haven't met him. He's a great guy. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would say first encourage people when you're talking to them. Ask questions like why they might think this way. You know, I mean, not be just dogmatic and be like, "Well, you're wrong." But to get them to tell you why they think maybe the Bible is just something that nobody ever agrees on. Yeah. And probably often they're very extreme things, sound bites they've heard from other places. Um, obviously, just get people first reading the scripture. Try to be reading it systematically. You know, not just taking a passage here and a passage there. Is there, um, can I say, ask, is there a right or wrong way to read it systematically? So when you say systematically, what do you mean? I don't think there's a right or wrong way. As, we, as long as your goal is to get through an entire book or an entire genre of yeah. scripture so you get a feel for just how it relates maybe to other parts of the Bible. Okay. Uh, I, I would also encourage, I mean, probably more a pastoral perspective, uh, you know, uh, encourage someone into, you know, go through some of the reasoning why there are these different conflicts in here. What, what is that the issue? So even helping some people realize there are issues Christians can disagree on. 
I mean, that's one roadblock for some yeah. people. They don't think Christians, if you're a Christian, you should never disagree with another Christian. Right. And so we have to help. And that, that's a sensitive subject even for mature Christians who still sometimes can be very dogmatic about certain matters of indifference. Right. You know, kind of helping them understand conviction, but being intelligent to, to examine the scriptures always, be open to that. Uh, I like how it's been said, and I think it's true, even for all of us here. Hopefully, over the years we've known Christ, our theology does change some. Right. Yeah. Like we're, yes. we're grounded in the basics, but maybe we begin as we get older uh, to realize those hills that we would stand and die on are not as many as we once thought they were. Right. The question is, yeah. how do we get there faster, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, we <laughs> like, want I, it to I would just now. think when you were saying, like, there's some Christians that, that think that they should never disagree with another Christian, all I was thinking was, well, those guys are not online. I don't know where they are. <laughs> right, but, yeah. but, I mean, that's the thing, especially in reform circles. And, yeah, and it's yeah. kind of germane to this question is trying to figure out, well, how do we get that kind of maturity? Or is it is it the kind of thing that it can only come through time as God works in progressive sanctification? Well, yeah, ultimately is a work of the Spirit in conjunction with, I'd say, the reading of His Word through being a part of a local church and hearing the preaching and teaching of the Scriptures. Uh, and, it, yeah, it's a part of process. I don't think any of us ever fully get there until we go to be with the Lord. Yeah. Right. You know, I, my experience has been it takes a bit of getting beaten down. Like, yeah. you know, I, I think... I remember when I first got into like like Christian Facebook groups and I had this real distinct memory of a time that I, I basically like didn't know who I was talking to and it was like I was in a Facebook group and it was some dude who had like a massive PhD in Roman history and I was in like this apologetics group and I said something like well of course I mean of course Corinius had the census don't you know anything and he I mean this was like a debate group he was an atheist he said well actually I did a PhD in Roman history in the first century and there's no record of Corinius doing a census during that time and I, I was like, oh, dang. And I, I remember like distinctly the next time that I, I got into a conversation, there was a part of me that was like, I really need to recognize that like I don't know everything. Yeah, right, and, sure. and there are people out there that know more about a certain topic than I do. And I need to be cognizant of that. And, you know, honestly, like this guy's wrong. The Bible tells us that Quirinius did a census in the first century around, you know, during Herod's reign and, and, and during Augustus' reign. We know that that's true. But I have to be able to like flex and, and like not flex, like like not a strange flex, but like be flexible to recognize that like the approach you take to a person has to recognize who they are. And this subject actually comes up in apologetics with uh, with Jewish people, mm -hmm. with, with Muslims who are familiar with the Old Testament, and then also with atheists who depend on Jewish and Muslim apologists to attack Christianity on the basis of the Old Testament. Right. So you'll run into a lot of times where people will say, yeah, Isaiah 50, you know, I, I don't remember the past top of, my, top of my head, but they'll bring up the fact that Alma doesn't always mean virgin. And that's like their silver right, bullet. Yeah, right. We'll see the New Testament took this out of out of um, perspective. And you have to be able to account for the fact that when Isaiah was talking about the virgin who will conceive, yeah, he probably, you know, the, all the evidence, the linguistic evidence, he probably was looking at a particular person and saying like, this is what's going to happen because that had to give Hezekiah comfort. Hezekiah? Yeah, Hezekiah. Right. Yeah, it sorry. had to give Hezekiah comfort. And it's telling Hezekiah, you know, 700 years from now, there's going to be a baby born in Jerusalem. So take comfort in that. That doesn't help him with his immediate issue, which is the context of the passage. And Hezekiah seemed to take immediate comfort right. from it. Right. But at the same time, 
even as early as the Septuagint, they changed that word to Parthenon. They changed it to a word that only means virgin and specifically understood it in reference to the Messiah. So we have to, we have to take those and be able to be flexible with our approach, but also understand like we're not the first people to deal with this. Mm -hmm. So I think it's William Perkins in Art of Prophesying has a section where he, he talks about like, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Like trust the scholarship that's come before you. Be critical, be discerning, but realize like we don't have to go back to the drawing board to refute Arianism. Like that was done for us at the Council of Nicaea. But see the issue, that we, the term with the virgin and the Hebrew verse, then like we're applying everything we just talked about. Well, Mary in its context says, I, I don't know a man. Right. Clearly she knew biology 101. Yeah. So that helps us <laughs> right. understand that the emphasis right. there was someone who has not had any sexual relationships. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's a good example of, of tying this together. When you're talking about apologetics, it reminds me, you know, we're all familiar with first Peter three fifteen. Uh, that a lot of podcasts like this one, it's apologetics to other Christians. Right. Right. You know, and, and how do you do that in love and realize these are good questions. I mean, I find that anyone, if, you know, if they ask a question, you're like, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, I've thought about that. Like that just immediately disarms yeah. any kind of thought like where well, you're, you know, you're ready to come at me to just shoot this down. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's, that's all helpful because we, we talk about this a lot, that the idea that as Christians, we should be the most loving of all brothers and sisters and be willing to have difficult conversations mm -hmm. to challenge one another, but to not be hateful or argumentative or yeah. obstinate about it. Right. If we're going after something because we're trying to understand what the scripture is saying, we can keep that forefront because it's so easy. It starts forefront and then the conversation can devolve into either name calling or just saying you don't understand or you're not as well read as, as I am. And so I think this idea, it's, it starts with reading the full counsel of the scripture as much as you can get yourself in that rhythm of, of reading and study. And I think sometimes we put almost too much emphasis on trying to have you know, supplementary resources. Yeah. Those are all helpful, but they do not replace what you just talked about, Dad, and this idea of understanding how the scripture speaks of itself. And it takes us in somewhat full circle, like speaking of the Psalms, you know, when we get to the crucifixion and Jesus quoting from the Psalms, he's quoting that verse, why have right. you forsaken yeah. me? I mean, clearly I, I would say he's sending a message. He He's speaking in a way that the Jews at the time would have understood that he was quoting the Psalms. We, right, that's right. We yeah. hear that, that and we just think Psalm. that's, that. yeah, that's an amazing expression of Christ on the cross. And we have to be quick, somebody that's Sometimes I'll have to remind us, oh, well, Jesus is also quoting, but their culture was so steeped in right, all of the Old the Testament. Old Testament. But that, that, that was the, the common language of, they would have heard that and said right away, yeah. here's Jesus imbuing meaning. He's actually reaching back in a way, but in the reaching back, he's almost like pushing it forward. You know, does yeah. this make sense? Like there's yeah. like a, a time continuum there almost where he's yeah. like, let me just remind you that this was as true then as it is right now, that it was the fulfillment. So in, in that sense, even though we talk about the new covenant is a better covenant than it is in Christ, that immediate first century audience had an advantage over us generally because they knew the Old Testament. Right. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. Well, and one of the th interesting things about that passage, you know, when you think about how Christ is using it, the question always goes to like, well, was Christ really forsaken by God on the cross? And and like you can discuss that and there's of different course, ways to yeah. resolve it. And Tim Keller had his little fiasco on Twitter where he, he wasn't trying to be a patripassionist, but he ended up sounding like it. But then you can go so far to the other side where James White is saying, yeah, Christ wasn't experiencing any God forsakenness on the cross. That He was just quoting the psalm. And in reality, what he was doing, I think, was 
even on the cross, he was crying out to the people who are hearing saying, right. I'm the Messiah. Right. Trust in me. Like, right. remember that Psalm that you all know is about the Messiah, that you, you wonder how it can be that the Messiah is going to suffer on the cross. This is it. This right? is that time. <laughs> you wonder, you wonder what it means for the the Messiah to have his hands and feet pierced. This is it. Right. Like, come trust in me, look to me. And you know, even like, um, in John, um, there's this new show called Christ in Context that, um, Kevin, who's been on, um, uh, Steady Anchor podcast a bunch of times is doing, and he was just talking about John three six uh, John three sixteen, and he was talking about how if you just read John three sixteen, right? This is why it's important to read whole sections of scripture. Mm-hmm. If you just read John three sixteen, you get off track, but if you read the whole passage, the whole context. Yes. Embedded in the verse before that is the fact that not everybody is saved because everyone's already condemned. Right. And it's it's Christ looking to Christ like they did to the serpent on the pole, is taking away their condemnation. It's not preventing them from being condemned. It's taking away condemnation that was already theirs. So even something like that, the New Testament takes, and this is why type and shadow is so important, right? Both the London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession have this robust category of type and shadow, and we handle it a little differently. But this idea that everything about Christ in the Old Testament was in this sort of shadowy form. It was real. It was there. It was it was caused by a real thing, right? A shadow is not fake, but it's not an exact representation. Right. And this idea that like the things that are are directly about Christ are there in shadowy form, right? The serpent on the pole was about Christ in shadowy form, right? But it was teaching the Messiah or the, the, the Jews that salvation comes from outside of themselves. And it comes from something that there's no reason why looking at a, a bronze serpent on a pole, which is actually something they probably shouldn't do in normal circumstances, right. Right. Somehow was their salvation. Well, this trusting trusting a man condemned as a criminal being executed for treason against the state and blasphemy. It's not something you should do in ordinary circumstances. But Christ was preparing them to say, I'm going to reverse your expectations, even though I told you about them in advance. Here's even just one more hint that things are not as they seem. You have to trust me. Right. Right. So could a bigger problem be that for that, I'm speaking very broadly, that for the majority of Christians, a lot of what we're talking about, they're not even concerned about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like think that's fair. Their biblical illiteracy, or just kind of, you know, knowing patchwork scriptures, that they might listen to this and be like, well, you know, that's that's fine. You want to debate that, but yeah. it really isn't important. So yeah. is that? Some, do you is. say that because that's something that you see from time to time that there is a, like really a lack of putting first things first, and this is one of the things that should be first. Well, I, I don't know if I would say it's... Well, the first would be the biblical importance of interpreting Scripture correctly. Yeah. So I, I guess I would say, again, I think we've covered extremes from those who are going to make something that really should not be a dividing issue of Christian unity are going to do that. And then the other extreme is, let's all just get along and not, yeah. we don't have to worry about these things. Yeah. It'll all pan out in the end. Like, you know, that's, that's a dangerous extreme as well. Right. I thought you were going to make a pan-millennialism joke no. there. <laughs> no, I was not going to do I, that. I'm the odd man out right now as the only uh, millennialist at the that's table. That's true. Yeah. It's true. How's that feel? Yeah. Fine. It's all going to pan out in the end. So. <laughs> I really thought that's good. You feel go. fine about being wrong. <laughs> well, Dad, there are some things that shouldn't divide us. I heard someone say that one time. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure a very wise person. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that said, I think this has been the definitive it conversation has. about hermeneutical 
application or other, yeah. yeah lots of great and would you agree Deb this has been the definitive conversation <laughs> sure which, which probably means though again let me remind the audience I haven't been on since episode 18 yeah I thought that was a meaningful conversation so uh, but, but hopefully it's encouraging everyone to ask questions send them in uh, you know the fact that people are saying I really want to understand this I don't want to misinterpret scripture as yes. an indication of spiritual growth yeah, and, uh, and then I think yes. to rest in the ministry of the Holy Spirit that that He is given to lead us, as John says, into truth. Yeah. So we don't have to be fearful that oh no, if I'm relying on the Spirit and the Word, I'm going to go off into some tangent thing. As long as we we genuinely desire uh, and have others around us to right. help balance that out. Well, so maybe as we close, you can weigh in on something that Tony and I have kind of. I mean, we feel confident in this, but we speculate about it, and as we try to have people who are, are listening as part of this conversation join their voices in and ask questions. But sometimes, as you know, in reform circles, asking a question can seem like you're expressing weakness, like you yeah. don't know as much as you should, sure. or that you're afraid to ask me because somebody yeah. might come down to you a little hard and say, oh, you're just wrong, you got off base. So get a sense from you, like, how do you feel about when people ask questions? What is the, You kind of said that you saw it as a sign of of spiritual searching for the, you know, not only the correct answers, but a sign of maturity of wanting to know the scriptures very closely. Um, but I mean, how do you interpret that when people ask you questions? Oh, I'm, I'm encouraged by it. I try to encourage them to put them at ease because I think there is a sense. I sometimes will say to a group of students, you know, if you have a question to ask uh, and you're kind of embarrassed, say, you know, I have a friend who is wondering. <laughs> Uh, or, you know, say something different. Hashtag asking uh, for a friend. Think, you know, it's so good. I, I think that's the thing because in a lot of church settings, I think we'd admit people, questions really are not encouraged. Yes. Know? I mean, right. if it's not where you were taking the lesson and someone asks something, I mean, I'm sure we've all caught ourselves doing things like that. And the, the reality is, even as a pastor myself, I think sometimes we get in the mode where we just want to give people the definitive answer and yeah. sometimes there isn't a definitive answer or there's an answer with you know what i'm still wondering about that i was listening to uh uh what's his name tom schneider yeah the new Shri testament yeah. scholar mm -hmm. uh and schneider. he was talking about uh you know end time views on millennial and premillennial and basically we're saying you no know, when i teach this i say you know here are the strengths of these and i'm still not really sure yeah and I thought that's really refreshing to hear yeah. that from someone like that that's very knowledgeable of certain books. But he's saying, you know what, our knowledge of Scripture is not exhaustive. Right. Uh, it should always be growing, but it's never exhaustive. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. That there's a sense in which we want to be confident what we're knowing and understanding, and yet be at the same time always humbled by the fact that we can't exhaust it. That exhausts us in a sense, like our ability yeah. to understand it, but that we can't have an exhaustive knowledge. So I think you just started a trend, Dad, for us, hopefully. This is what we should do is like this, because this, this is actually really good. It gives people the excuse to ask any kind of question. I love this without feeling any kind of shame or sense that it's weak by just saying, I'm asking for a friend. Like that should be the code. Like that gives you license. That gives you liberty to say like, ask whatever yeah, you like. I, I would just clarify that probably. Make sure if you are going to ask a question that you're open to listening to yes. the answer. That, that's good. Response. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny because dad has no idea that that's like a super common, funny, like goofy thing people say online. Mm -hmm. They'll ask, they'll ask a dumb question intention, like an intentionally dumb question. And then they'll say asking for a friend. But but it's true. Like and, and you know, people write into us all the time. They ask questions to us all the time. 
Jesse and I don't have all the answers. Absolutely. But what I love about it is people feel free to do that. Yes. But if you ever don't feel free to do that, then email us and tell us not to use your name. Like we're happy yeah. to to just ask the question without including your name if you feel embarrassed about it. I'll tell a funny story about questions. When I first became, I think I've shared this before, but when I first became a Christian, the band DC Talk was really influential <laughs> for me. And that why do all your like these stories about well, that's, DC Talk? That's why it was such a big never, deal. We can't go like more know, than two episodes without coming back to DC. But Talk. that's why it was so important. That was why it was so exciting for me to meet Michael Tate at the airport. Was it was like DC Talk was this huge deal. And the song Jesus Freak. There's a line. It says the Pharisees freaked when they heard him speak. They're talking about John the Baptist. Yeah. And for the longest time, I thought that the only context I had for what that word could possibly mean was that it sounded a little bit like the word pharaoh and so i assumed that that was like some weird archaic plural for the word pharaoh Mm -hmm. and i never asked well i remember i was in confirmation i was in ninth grade and they were talking about witnessing to your friends i had no idea what that meant and i couldn't find it it was this was before the internet was a really big deal i couldn't find anything and i was ashamed to ask so when i finally did ask i felt stupid because i was like everyone around me knew this so if you ever feel silly asking a question first of all like ask the question. Yeah, it's better to sure. ask than right. not to ask. For sure. But we're happy to answer anonymous questions. You know, we, we bring up Jimmy or Jackson or Diego, people who are kind of our frequent flyers and we love that. But there are there are people <laughs> that send us questions once and that's all they right. ever do and we love that too. Right. And maybe, I know you're probably going to close here and then wait for applause. But <laughs> I was thinking um, there was something Ravi Zachariah said about behind every question is a questioner. Yes. So, so one thing worse than hearing a question is misunderstanding the question and answering something that they're not even asking. Yes. Right. So important to make sure if, if you, they ask you a question maybe try to rephrase it and say, is this sort of what you're asking or is this what you're kind of thinking? And then that gives you time even to think a little bit before you respond. Yeah. And that's a helpful word because I think so much, thankfully, of like the questions that happen in the Facebook group or that get sent to us are coming from a place that it's not just abstraction, that somebody's really not even just wrestling, but they're just trying to understand something and put it into practice in their life in a way that's a little bit more volitional. Mm -hmm. And I love those types of questions. Mm -hmm. It's not just about like, well, help me break down this pragmatic, like esoteric dogmatic idea, but I'm really trying to be a follower that's very closely tied to the Lord Jesus Christ and my relationships and my talking and my expression online. And I've come across this thing and I'm trying to understand how I can put it into practice, into application in a way that's more profound. And so is, is the best response, say, if you're, if you're asked a question, is the best response to know that your answer will lead to another question? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's I think a, so. I think, I think so. Because like, it, it, as we've talked, like how many episodes now, apparently 195, this is 195. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> it happened. And uh, all that time, I think so many times we'll come to a subject and we wish we had like another two hours, right? Because we've processed something and then thought, oh, but what about this? Yeah. And then we could talk, we should talk about this. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes I think, yeah, behind every answer, there's five more questions yeah. and a good answer does lead you deeper into the well. Yeah. And the beauty of the scripture and of course of the Lord Jesus Christ is that is a well or that is a mine that you can endlessly go to for jewels and keep turning out yeah. all of these treasures, looking them over and over and over again, and it will never be exhausted. Yeah. You know, I wanted to to make sure that we said this before we wrap up is the fundamental answer to this question, right? The whole question is how do we, how do we handle passages that are in their original context seem to be something historic, but then, you know, either the New Testament or later Old Testament reflection seems to pull that forward to be about Jesus. And the question that I always ask when I encounter that is, 
instead of asking what did Paul mean, what did what did Matthew mean, what did Moses mean, the question should be what does the Holy Spirit mean? What what right. did the Holy Spirit mean when they inspired such and such a person? And on one level, you know, there's this old adage I forget who said it. I think for some reason it, it, Gordon Fee sticks in my head. He wrote um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. In one level, this is true. He said something like, um, "Well, Paul couldn't have meant what Paul didn't mean, or Paul couldn't have meant what Paul didn't know." But on another level, that's that's not necessarily true. And right. here's here's part of why I say that, and this is a biblical reason, right? That's the the other thing is our first interpreter of the Bible should be the Bible, right? And so in Hebrews 3 uh, verse 7, the author of Hebrews is bringing, bringing all these Old, past, old uh, Testament passages to bear on the ministry of Christ. And he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes a psalm. And it's a psalm of David, but the, the point is, it doesn't really matter what kind of psalm it was. The Bible treats everything in the Bible as though the Holy Spirit is the author. Right. So we are on an excellent footing to ask the question, what did the Holy Spirit mean? And I think there is a tendency, especially, you know, I, not to call any particular person out, but I'm going to call a particular person out as we <laughs> usually do, but like the John MacArthur school of, of interpretation tends to, I think, miss this element of it. They tend to limp. He tends to limit himself so much to the, uh, historical grammatical method that I think he he sometimes misses nuances in the text. Sure. And there, I mean, that's to his strength. He's an expert at at historical grammatical exegesis. Right. But I think when we when we limited ourselves to what the human author could possibly have meant, we uh, we sometimes end up treating the Bible like just another human book. We have to. And, right. And then we we forget that like the Holy Spirit is the primary author of Scripture. Right. And we're on scriptural grounds to say that. Right. So I, I think, you know, this is a great question. And, and like we're talking about, the best questions lead to more questions. Right. Yeah. The best questions drive us further into the Scriptures, yes. further into our shared Reformed tradition, further into our confessions. And, and that's really the way we want to go, I think, is to look at the, the wisdom that God has embedded in the church prior to us. And then uh, above that, and especially above that in the scriptures themselves as the chief interpreter of scripture. Right. So could, could we say with that, then, then every question anyone might have about the Bible is important, although its implications may vary. And that kind of reminds me to help redeem Spurgeon from an earlier hermeneutical <laughs> attack, that there's a scarlet thread that runs yes. through the Bible. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's well said. Well, as you've seen, Dad, we're really horrible at ending the podcast. <laughs> I think we mentioned we use all these verbal cues, like we're drawing it to a close, wrapping up. But we'll we we'll bring it. Yeah. Well, we'll bring it to a final end. I have here. a friend who is wondering how do you close <laughs> this. <laughs> Dad, you're a natural at this. Why don't, you should you have your own really podcast. Yeah, you really, and with that said, so I think because you are both the pastor of residence and our esteemed guest on this particular episode, you get to have the final word. So is there anything you'd like to say to kind of usher us into the end here on this topic? I would say please keep your questions coming. Uh, and if you have questions about the Puritan Reform <laughs> Journal, uh, also email those in. Uh, but it, it's been fun. Thank, thank you for being willing to come on again. You're welcome to any time. Like I said, you're a pastor in residence, so yes. you're you're on the payroll, which is zero, unfortunately. Yeah, but we appre we appreciate you being on the payroll very much. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. This is where you say love the brain. <laughs>